and welcome back to another episode of A Need to Read, you absolute legends. I hope everyone is well in and amongst the chaos of all of these new variants and the run-up to Christmas. Hopefully you're all managing your stress levels well and things like that because that is very important, especially at this time of year. And hopefully this podcast will provide you a little bit of respite and get you an ear into a very pleasant conversation with Yusuf. Now, I don't know if people do this very often, but I would like to dedicate this podcast to my friend Paul. Paul died earlier this year of COVID and without Paul, um, I'll never have met um, or spoken with Yusuf or Johnny from Popeen Fitness um, or in fact started journaling or read Happy by Darren Brown um, or got into stoicism or probably got into meditation. So there are plenty of things um, that I would have liked to have thanked him for prior to his death um, but I didn't get an opportunity and I'm sure... I mean, let's hope that when you die, you get to escape a need to read. Um, but I would just like to dedicate this episode to him. Because um, people do it with books, I'll do it with a podcast. This podcast is one of my favourite for a while. I love chatting with Yusuf. I think he's one of my favourite people on Instagram. Um, but that also means that he's one of my favourite in people in real life. Because there, there are people in real life beyond Instagram. And let's just remember that. Now, before we get into the episode, just a quick word from the sponsor of the podcast. Now, the podcast, as always, is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, I'm mentioned about managing stress levels and this kind of time of year is quite stressful things going on in the media in the news that are going to be stressing people out and potentially making them feel a little bit sad now going to therapy doesn't need to be an emergency situation for you if you're feeling a little bit sad or if you feel like you need a little bit of guidance or if you're thinking i would never speak to a professional about my mental health then all I would ask is that you try and reframe the way you look at it because therapy has been one of the most important things for me in my personal development journey. Now, you can get 10% off of therapy with BetterHelp by heading to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. All you have to do is run through a 10 minute questionnaire and from there you'll be matched with a therapist within 48 hours, which in terms of how quickly you're usually matched with a therapist, either through sort of the NHS or going and trying to find your own private therapist that's quite a quick way to do things and if you don't like that therapist you can get a new one free of charge so you just head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and you'll find everything you need there as well this podcast is sponsored by heights and heights are your all-in-one brain care supplement now it's not just your brain that this looks after it's full of vitamin d which is essential for your immune system and most of us don't have enough vitamin d in us unfortunately most of us don't live in tropical environments with lots of sun now vitamin d is a fat soluble vitamin and included in the supplement is all you'd ever need in terms of EHA and DHA. DHA is the fat that you find in your brain and it makes up about 95% of it. So it supports the healthy function of your brain. Now, you can't just take a protein shake for your brain, but I'd say that these two pills from Heights that you take daily are essentially your protein shake for your brain. Now, you can get 10% off of any subscription by heading to the link in the description and using the code need to read with the number two and not the word, and that will get you 10% off. Be very apologetic about the fact that my sound cuts out at small points um, and I could shoulder responsibility and say that it's my fault that that happened or I could just say hey guys look if you shared the podcast a little bit more it would reach more people and I could pay someone who actually knows about sound to sort it out so I'm very sorry I love you all I think you're all great um, you'll understand that this only happens every now and then and I'm sorry but this conversation is great and I hope you enjoy it. A viral tweet. What's that about? 
It was about leaving the NHS, which in hindsight, I should have guessed, like it's got all the ingredients for a viral tweet. Like people feel very strongly about the NHS. And so people yeah. share things on social media to confirm their existing views or to speak through someone else's voice. Yep. So it was kind of, it was kind of perfect for that. I didn't expect it at the time. I was just writing like just some random thoughts about like, oh, here's what it was like working here. Yeah. But it's taken well, off. <clears throat> all right. So now you're in a, a run of interviews and I've got you first, of course. I've got you fresh, which is what we just said. But well, it's the most NHS, important one. Yeah, exactly. I need to read. Big thing. <laughs> um, you left the NHS. Talk to me about yeah. it. What's what? What was like? <laughs> I'd I'd love to know how you make decisions anyway. Just because I have mad respect for you and just think you're well intelligent. Maybe I I hold you in higher regard than I should. But thanks, um... man. It's it's all illusion. <laughs> but uh, no, I I appreciate that. It was it it was really just because propane has taken it has come to the point where the decision is a no brainer. Um, yeah. With just it just needs my attention right now. I've got nothing against the NHS, nothing against medicine, nothing. It's a great career. Um, and I might might come back to it in the future. I mean, it's luckily, in terms of the risk barbell of, you know, extreme, like, SaaS product, entrepreneurship, VC, like, you could go bankrupt with $3 million in debt versus the stability of working in healthcare. They're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? Yeah. And so... You know, it's lucky that if things do go completely wrong, then you've always got a predictable income in healthcare. People are always going to be ill. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's quite a, um, it's definitely an interesting decision, but I, I, I do get it. I think it's such a noble career working in the NHS because you do essentially get shafted for the income that you get for the amount that you put in. I don't think it, it kind of measures up. And then you could have the argument of, oh, well, no, actually, in terms of contribution, if we're thinking of it from a capitalist point of view, you're like, oh, well, it's fair because this is what it's worth to the government. Um, but how, how did that, that come into the decision? Yeah, I mean, that that was one of the things that people really picked up on on the Twitter thread. I mean, it wasn't meant to be about pay. It was just about there is a misallocation of the massive amount of resources that go into the NHS, a lot of, a lot of funding that doesn't reach the point of delivering patient care, which is at its core. And the problem that I think a lot of people share or the frustration that people shared is that it's so obvious where some of these holes in the bucket are, but because the management consultants who get brought in at nine grand a day or the powers that are allocating these resources don't have any kind of, that they're so out of touch with what it's with what the kind of basic ground level challenges are of delivering patient care that these things don't get fixed yeah. and it was about the fact that you know i spend i estimate three hours a day in total in some form wrestling with technology fighting with a printer or waiting for a computer to load or stuff that is so avoidable yeah. but because of this misallocation of resources and the th the fact that a lot of these problems don't get fed back up the chain they just stick around and it's just a like you're being paid by the hour so 
if you want to allocate your highly trained doctors to send faxes and um you know try and deal with printer jams all day like they can do it but it doesn't seem like the best way to allocate those resources yeah i mean if i was running the business i'd probably employ a couple of people to be printer runners or maybe even god forbid just invest in some more efficient technology because i mean it's 2021 things are things are pretty good in terms of tech borderline they're getting pretty scary good <laughs> yeah and there's so many exciting bits of technology that I think we'll, we'll see them over the next, you know, 30 years probably. But things like text-to-speech or speech-to-text for patient documentation, um, synchronizing databases. We've got the blockchain verification for patient records. Um, we've got booking systems for for you know booking a, a meal to come to your house within 30 minutes but if you want to book an appointment with a gp everyone has to call on monday morning exactly 8 30 a.m and try and like be the first one to get through on the phone like there are just obvious holes in the bucket that i don't think you need to be an expert to look at and be like that looks a bit broken to me yeah i feel like do you, do you think the fact that we have like an aging population plays into that in terms of like, like all the old people they wouldn't be able to use those systems we'll just keep it like right, i'm going to chuck you a tin can i've got string in it can i have an appointment <laughs> yeah it, that, that is a big it is a big problem as well um user interface design is kind of the unsung hero of why so many of these you know there's there's so much profitability in the private sector in making things as simple as possible yeah. to use and you do see you know there are some features where you can do like an e-consultation for example and i don't mean to make this whole podcast about the nhs but no, um, we're only five minutes in <laughs> um but you, so you can you can do an e-consultation which is really cool like you fill in an online form a gp will check over it they'll triage it and they'll say okay do this it's difficult though because if you incentivize people or if you open up a channel where someone can fill in a form in a couple of minutes and get a a review by a doctor. Some would say, oh, okay, that helps like direct some of the demand and the flow, but also it's reactive and it changes the dynamics So people go, oh, well, it's quite easy to just like send a picture of my rash. And, and so yeah. suddenly the threshold for what determines the time. <laughs> well, yeah. Like what, what constitutes this is a, this is worthwhile getting a doctor's appointment for. It's so much easier to do that. But then also, as you say, the aging population, you end up with a much higher proportion of young people who know how to do online computer internet stuff. Yeah. Doing that stuff. And then um, other people who can't figure out the technology get neglected. So it's a very difficult problem to solve. And I've not got the answers. Yeah, I think, well, you'd be a very rich man if you did. You could be like, right, nine grand a day, please. I'll come in and tell you how to sort this out. Um, which well, I guess that's what yeah. some people do. <laughs> but that, that was the other problem, really, that that in healthcare, there is a, you kind of touched on it, uh, there's a taboo around financial incentives. Now, because suppose, you know, the, the whole thing's together with goodwill and people doing things for under their market rate of pay based on the level of training and um, yeah. academic performance and all that kind of stuff but there are systems that where 
if like a discharge summary isn't filled or um, certain things where the the trust would get fined if something isn't done, but that thing doesn't get done because there are other clinical priorities that need doing. If you were to offer some kind of financial incentive, just like any other organization in the private sector would do, like a fiver or a parking pass or a lunch voucher, something like that. Yeah. To do, to write a letter, those problems would just get solved instantly. And it would be profitable because, for the for the organization because if, if they don't get done, they get fined hundreds of pounds. So it just, it, yeah, like I think if we just can fully accept that we are rational agents in a free market economy and we respond to incentives. It's not too radical a suggestion to make. Yeah. How is it come with quite a heavy heart making the decision or is it were all the things just pointing in the right way? It's like, actually, do you know what? I've, I've done it now. Cause one thing I really admire about you is just like, you just do stuff. <laughs> you're, you're one of those people who just does stuff. Like I think your, your route into medicine wasn't the standard route, was it? No, it wasn't. It, you, you've just, I mean, this is just partly, you've just got to bob and weave with whatever your, whatever your soul or the market or the demands on on you are pulling you to do at the time. And you, you did the same thing. You know, you, you were in a job where I imagine you were performing pretty well. You were you were good at what you do. You're a, you're a personable guy, which is very helpful in sales. Yeah. <laughs> but there was something which called at your attention. It wasn't profitable at the time, but you were like, no, I can feel that something is calling me to do this. I've just got to go with it. And, you know, Antoine Creel talks about this, who's a, he's an ex-Goldman Sachs uh, portfolio manager or trader. And he says a lot of people are afraid to quit their jobs because they're like, oh, I'm on, I'm on 25 grand. And if I quit my job, that losing 25 grand of, of income and I'll be out on the streets. And he's like, well, no, like you're, you're seeing the option as either quit my job and become immediately homeless versus stay in my job and earn 25 grand a year. He's like, that's not the option. He was like, worst case scenario, if you walked out of your job right now, you'd probably be able to find another one at 23 grand, Yeah. you know, at worst. And so what's your downside? It's two grand a year. So he just reframes the, the risk of doing these things as that's your maximum downside. And what's your maximum potential upside? Well, it's infinite. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I, for, to answer your question, I think for me, like, I would love to have stayed in it. I think it's a, it's a really, it's a great privilege to be able to diagnose and treat patients. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of trust and it feels like you're actually making use of the systems that you're sat within to actually deliver something, which, which makes a difference. Um, and it was just my personal set of opportunities and demands on me that made me leave. And I, you know, I think for anyone who I've had, I've got loads of messages from med students and doctors saying like, oh, you know, I'm kind of feeling a bit disillusioned. What do I do? I'm stuck. And it's like, no, I, I think it's still an amazing career and you can grow as a person. It's so varied. You can, um, there's training opportunities, there's potential for growth. You're working with unbelievably smart people, like yeah. completely raise the ceiling on what I thought was possible from human competence. That's good which is yeah like really encouraging in terms of your faith in humanity um 
but but exactly as you say it's just about as as the universe kind of lays out little golden threads and points you in certain directions i guess sometimes you've just got to be like okay well there's my sign just got to go with it yeah yeah definitely i've been reading um have you heard of paul bloom no so he's got a book that i'm reading at the moment called the sweet spot is somewhere around here and it's basically like uh pain suffering pleasure and like trying to balance that in pursuit of a good life and there's some research done by daniel kahneman recently or not recently or within like the last 10 15 years on people's happiness um experienced happiness in in the moment where they're asked to just report their happiness at various times when when their phone buzzed and what he found is that it's the people who had experienced happiness they don't necessarily remember it it's people who reported more of like a satisfaction with life their happiness may have been lower but he moved away from sort of investigating happiness to move into satisfaction because he feels like that's a more important thing and i and i think like i i see it with like my mum works in the nhs it's not necessarily that her day-to-day running of the job makes her particularly happy but it is a greater sense of satisfaction because like taking it back to like victor franco i know no one we know is in a concentration camp currently but like it's having that meaning behind the suffering of like oh my god this is a really frustrating job to do because i can see all of these holes in the bucket and i can't quite fill them quick enough or don't have the power to yeah it's a good book I think that, if you want, if you great... want to read that it's, it's really good so far it, it sounds right up my street yeah i'll um i'll make a note of that for sure because you're right you're right there that a decision has to be made within the framework of your oh thanks you're writing that down yeah. <laughs> so um it has to be made within the, the framework of what is your personal preference for the assortment of time satisfaction freedom impact money and you you have a personal kind of set of preferences for that some people are very happy to do something that's totally psychopathic and abstract and doesn't impact people at all but it just generates it just you know extracts money from the economy other people can't deal with that and and so you have to have a you have to look at what is your personal set of that in terms of satisfaction and delivering patient care some people are fine with the admin burden and the kind of set of red tape that you have to deal with around that but so much of it gets in the way of actually doing what you went into this job for which is delivering patient care that you're thinking well i'm spending more time doing non-clinical stuff than clinical stuff does this match my personal set of things or is it within my tolerance yes or no make that decision i think we talked about the way of the superior man last time book by david i've actually actually read it since and i'm like I can pull maybe three or four chapters. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Then the other parts, I'm like, wow, you need to calm down the ravishing of ladies, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, there's a few weird bits um, in there. And he, it's a very wide ranging book. But, um, you know, one, one of the chapters that's relevant to this has been the one about layers of an onion and your purpose. I don't know if you remember that one where he talks about... Yeah if you are doing a certain project or task or job or whatever in in your life your life is in a certain phase and you feel a kind of itch in your soul to go and do something else you can ignore that but people will sense that 
misalignment, that inauthenticity in you. And those, your, your, your purpose changes and evolves over time. And so the outer layer of your purpose will fall away like the skin of an onion. And if you try and hold on to it, it's just going to become more and more shriveled and you'll just look nice. out of sync. <laughs> and the other similar chapter was live as though your father was dead. And so that's not living in the cultural, societal, religious expectation and values of your yeah. country and religion and society and, and you know, father. It's not about your physical father. It's kind of everything that represents. Um, and so, you know, I got a bit of hate online for people being, how dare you turn your back on the NHS at this time? And you're like, all right, fine. But like, do I want to live in accordance with how this, you know, Twitter bot 0023 thinks that I should live my life or how my body should look or what I should be doing with my, with my time and all these things. Like everyone's got an opinion on what you should be doing, but I just think you've got to, you've got to look within and say, what, what, what would give me that quiet satisfaction? Even if, as you say, the day to day, uh, frustrations of it, feel painful at the time but if you can come home at night and be like ah, yes i'm living in the land here yeah that's what matters i think i think that's something that i'm struggling with at the moment i was on the phone to my mum this morning she's like, how are you doing and i was like well it's existential monday so it's a pretty wild day for my brain and i'm, <laughs> and I'm at a bit of a, a crossroads in sort of like where i want to take the podcast i feel like i've i've had some people on in the past who are like firm believers in stuff that i'm like oh i think it's quite silly that you believe in that because it's it's not actually based on any evidence and it's and it's proved it's placebo all these affirmations firm, oh, so firm, firm believers in like right got you i saw some um, of your um, <laughs> ragging on crystals recently I, i'm I, i'm i worry it's maybe a bit of self-sabotage for myself i'm thinking right what do i need to uncover here why am i trying to lose some of my audience and i and i know I, I thought it was perfect you know because authenticity no no i thought it was it was a perfect target because as a proportion, there's not as many people that believe in crystals, but you also picked out the kind of undying um, faulty beliefs and and mm. placebo and, and all of this stuff as a using crystals as the representation of it. Whereas if you'd gone with something that was a little bit more emotive, veganism, keto, <laughs> carnivore, uh, CrossFit, any of these things where they are just as much religions in themselves, but people get very upset if you knock their religion but at least crystals are a bit more rare so if you do lose a following it'll be a much smaller proportion yeah it's i think it was like 150 from from the video and i was like i'm, I'm, I'm actually, you actually quite happy yeah yeah and mate, it happens every time every time i post about crystals or like i sent an email about affirmations not working for people with low self-esteem the other day lost like 50 subscribers but i'm quite happy with that because i i, I honestly feel there are a lot of people who are mentally ill and, and I'm saying that as someone who is, I'm pretty mentally ill for like three, four months of the year. The other parts, I'm just hiding it really well. Putting so much energy into things that just won't work. You don't turn to affirmations because you feel good about yourself. You turn to affirmations because you've probably got quite low self-esteem. So sitting there thinking, I am rich, I am wealthy. It's like, well, firstly, you're never going to fucking believe it. Because I think it's your medial prefrontal cortex is, is the thing that adds context what you're saying so like you, you can't actually trick your brain because you'll say it and you'll be like i know you so, better than you 
Yeah, exactly. You can't fool yourself. And it's very surface level. I So I actually believe in affirmations, but probably for the opposite reason. And this is maybe a bit controversial, but if you sit in the mirror and you say, I am rich, I am wealthy, I am, I am happy, I am worthy, all that stuff. I think because you are so self-aware and smart as a, you know, as a human, your mind and your unconscious throws up everything contrary to that. So actually it's a regressive exercise to bring up all of your shit, all of the stuff that is at odds with what you're affirming. And then you have to sit and deal with it. And that's actually quite a painful psychodynamic process, I guess, to, to, to go through. It's pulling up all the sludge. And so I think affirmations are actually quite a um, brave thing to, to do because they, they will achieve the opposite. They'll show, they'll, they'll turn your reticular activating system to everything that is contrary to that. And then you have to sit and deal with it head on. I, th I think it's, it's definitely true because I've written stuff down before and I've, and I've really like tried to believe it. Like I've done scripting. Have you heard of scripting, which is where you write about how you are in the future and Ryan Holiday talks about it and he goes the enemy with the, um, Upton Sinclair, some California governor who wrote like a massive manifesto about how he'd already changed things and got to the point and he was like, oh, I feel like I've already done it. it. It can be quite demotivating, but I suppose if you are self-aware and you're like, I am rich, it's like, actually, no, bitch, you ain't rich at all. <laughs> Look at your bank <laughs> account. You're in your overdraft. You can't afford to pay your pay as you go sim. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's exactly it. And then it's like, right, now I've got to deal with that discomfort and all of the conditionings that are... Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's a, I think this whole manifestation industry has, is so profitable because who doesn't want to think like, oh, you mean, I don't need to go out into the world and actually do things. I can just sit and just talk about think it. about it nicely and in my little warm jumper and just have a nice <laughs> time thinking that I'm a millionaire and then I'm going to get a check in the morning from an old Jim uncle, who, you know, it's... <laughs> and, the, and that's another thing that people in, in, in that, like line of work my issue with it is kind of on a on a moral basis like i just don't think people should be profiting out of stuff like that people are targeting people who are like i say like probably a little bit mentally ill and they're taking profit from that of something that actually genuinely doesn't work so like actually if you say here's atomic habits build some belief in your ability to do stuff and to commit to things and just do that and maybe it won't turn out for the best but you'll have the self-efficacy to be like i can do something different now i know how to learn yeah it's i think empowering people is a much more ethical way to to do business yeah. and as the reason that you lost followers presumably is because you're attacking their crutch you're attacking the thing that they're using as a shield to say i don't need to engage with any of this difficult stuff and so i, I want to just do the, the want to use the magic you know and so we for people that don't know me myself and my business partner johnny run a nutrition and fitness company so we coach people to get in better shape but over time we started because of our content was quite nerdy and very physiology based we started to get a lot of personal trainers as our as our audience and then they started to say oh how can you help me with my systems to coach 
other people as well. So we kind of, we now also help trainers do the same thing. Um, but so we share a lot of the kind of, um, mistakes that we'd, we'd made over time. And one of them was hiring a business coach years ago who was very into the high ticket manipulative sales call script. I mean, you, you'll be unlimited all the business, different... unlimited money. You can have it all. If you start my five day free challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and, uh, and this was when we were reaching fitness clients and he, he was advising this 12 step sales script that was, and he wrote literally in the script, tears are encouraged to try and make them cry at this point. And, and it was very like twist the knife type sales. And it just didn't, it obviously didn't sit well with us. And this guy, I'm not going to mention his name, but he was, uh, bragging about making a single mother cry on the phone and remortgage her house so that she could afford his, uh, several thousand pound fat loss plan. And you're just thinking, this is not only deeply unethical, not adding any value to anyone, not solving a problem that's even, it's, you know, losing fat isn't a thousand pound problem. It's a 50 quid problem, but also it's, it's not even good for your business. You are generating regret purchases. You know, someone who buys in that emotional state is probably not in a frame of mind to actually engage with a systematic program and move things forward. It's amazing the like level of narcissism some people have. And I'd say that's like borderline psychopath, that guy, because I, I don't know anyone that likes making people cry. I don't think that's anything that people should be aiming for. Not a healthy thing, is it? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> um, so I guess I guess you got rid of him as as a business coach and, and started following. Did, did you hire many more business coach? Because like, obviously it's, it's amazing by the way, and well done that you've like done so well with propane and, and you're sort of stepping out of, of your career to move into that full time. I think that is, that That's is really fun. good. And I, and I often see like an ad come up on YouTube for you guys. I'm like, oh my God, I wish, I wish that, that the money from that ad wasn't wasted on me, <laughs> who is not a personal oh. trainer, who doesn't care about online clients, but it's, it's obviously well targeted because the kind of content I consume, I would say is kind of in line with a lot of like personal trainers would be, would be watching. So it, what Johnny is, is basically this kind of absolute unit behind a set of spreadsheets in it's like the stealth bomber. And occasionally he'll send me a message saying, Yusuf, can you just send me an ad angle using this angle? one minute video and I'll send him a video. And before I know it, he's just got it behind this like anti-aircraft gun that he's just like, <laughs> that he's firing at people through, you know, um, just plowing the, the YouTube ad spend behind it. And uh, you get people approach you in the gym being like, I can't get your bloody adverts off my screen. Like, and you're like, oh God, like this is, you know, it's the, the leverage. I'm sure you've, um, you've experienced this. You're, you're, you're following is several, several times the size of ours where like, one thing you say somewhere just echoes through the internet and then you're like oh god like (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't actually do any ads i think i probably should at this point i'd say like my engagement's declining a lot of that stuff is is declining because i had quite rapid growth um on instagram and it's it's got to the point now where it's like i just can't reach all my followers um and i'm trying to stay out of the mindset of oh my god the algorithm hates me it's really like it's just a fucking algorithm. I can't Fickle though, it. isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, and then it's quite 
if you think about it too much, it's just a little bit depressing. And and if I'm honest, Instagram is something I really am planning on like stepping away from. I want to be off social media completely within five years because I don't really like the way things are going on it. I can't see it mm. becoming a more positive space. People like Sam Harris have said like social media, as we know, it probably won't be here within like 15 years. And whether that means we're going to move really? over to the metaverse. How's that going to happen? I think there will have to be a time where people say enough and enough is enough. This is negatively impacting society. And of course like there, there are positive things to come from social media, but you and I posting something educational is not going to get as many likes as some bloke with a shaker. Who's like in mad shape saying, Hey, have you tried this particular type of peptide collagen protein just yet? Cause it'll change your life. But no, mm. mate, what changed your life was like eight years or probably 12 years of solid graft in the gym. The supplements Boring work. Minimal, minimal like effect on what you actually look like. 10 years of in the same six exercises for yeah. <laughs> slightly more weight each time. Yeah. So th this is the, the I'd, I'd be very interested to see how things evolve over the next 15 years because I think we have tendency i'm sure you've talked about this before on your podcast i've heard clips of it but we have a tendency to move to the lowest common denominator of human behavior like the easiest thing and, and especially when the, this new era of social media is particularly insidious in that it's not humans interacting with a static addictive source it's a reactive and dynamic source that actually is responding exactly to what fires up your particular dopamine receptors the most and thousands of data engineers on the other side of your screen maximizing the time that you're spending on screen that's a really scary situation i don't know how we're going to recover from that i've seen tristan harris talking about if we change the the thing that we're optimizing for rather than time on screen to number of days tracked on my fitness pal or number of minutes meditated or those kind of things and we adjust these behavioral hacks that are being used in apps to something that's better for us all but it would require everyone to be complicit in that wouldn't it all app developers would have to all be moving towards the same goal otherwise the one guy who makes the the TikTok, they instantly clear up don't they yeah it's a shame i, I honestly i spend a lot of my time pretty depressed about the way things are going at the moment and I'm looking a lot into, like, I've just read Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall. I never thought, like, that would ever be a book that I'd read. As I was reading, I was like, actually, on a global scale, things are pretty fucked. And there are people who are coming for the West, namely Russia and China. And I had to be very careful in the podcast. I was like, I just want everybody to know, of course, I'm not a racist. When I'm talking about these countries, <laughs> I'm talking about them, like, as a government. But, like, if you look at China, the, the, the we the Uyghur Muslim um, people in China, like potentially millions of them in re-education camps, which is essentially a half nice way of saying concentration camp. But Have countries you seen like, footage from those camps? It's, it's minging. And there's like rape, yeah. abuse, you name it, anything bad is going on there. It's essentially genocide. But countries like Pakistan, majority Muslim country, are like, oh, don't worry about what you're doing, guys. We just, maybe you could just build us a road. And we'll give you a port. Um, you can have better access to the sea, so you can be a more powerful navy. It's like, would you like? Would you like that? Don't worry about the 
the Muslims who are essentially we should be bonded with. <laughs> yeah, it's like we don't need them. We've got lots of people in Pakistan. It's fucking mental, mate. And uh, yeah, it's the the extent to which money and power run the world is is pretty sad. It's, Makes sense. There's something. Yeah, it, it really is. There's something about when people are in a collective and there's no individual accountability that groups responding to incentives act psychopathically and act differently to how individuals would. And we see this with safety testing in, cor in corporations or suppressing of science, you know, the, the damaging effects of estrogens in plastics or um, in certain com carcinogenic compounds in cosmetics and all, all those kind of things where if it was an individual being like, oh, I'm making this thing that's going to kill loads of people, like, of course, some kind of conscience, yeah. some basic human conscience would, would kick in. But when it's group accountability and no one is individually responsible and the company is just optimizing for a certain number, that all goes away. And, and I think it sounds like that's happening now with, except with lives as well. It's a, uh, it's a worrying trend and we're all just walking into it. <laughs> yeah, it is. But how do you avoid thinking about it? What, what, what's, how do you train your attention? I'm, I'm going to ask you about that. Fuck it. Meditation. <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's, let's move on from how depressing the world is. Um, you, you are someone I looked to for like a bit of guidance. I think when we first had a podcast and we were chatting about meditation and, you and Johnny you were talking about how much did it. And I was like, actually, that seems like a pretty reasonable thing to do. And maybe I was on like doing it every day for a couple months by then. I've now, because Headspace have, have got me by the balls, uh, also sponsored the podcast, guys. Um, <laughs> they uh, uh, The streak I've got on there now, I think it's at like six 600 days. And it's made oh, a profound it impact. I know, but it, I shouldn't be doing it for the streak. I should be sitting to meditate for the for the sake of meditating. But I suppose the, no, end, I disagree. the end result is the same. I disagree. I think any if if we get behaviorally hacked every day to refresh the feed and to check how many likes we've got and to you know send a send a tweet or whatever else, we should be using that same leverage on ourselves to do stuff that is valuable. So yes, if not breaking the streak is what gets you to sit down on the cushion great you know at the end of the day while you're practicing you're not thinking about that yeah that is very very true i think it's uh um, i just have a propensity to give myself a hard time for anything so even when it's a positive thing i'm like yeah but you could be doing it in a better way <laughs> <laughs> well we we all could but I, I think meditation is one of those things that once it gains its own momentum the practice does you rather than you doing the practice and that's a phenomenon that you see with people who we have a client actually who just decided to do three hours a day minimum um, for a year. And he said by month six, it just happened to him and it started to really shift a lot of the internal space that happened within him. But I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty serious numbers. And I think yeah. that's part of the, it's why making a comparison between meditation and the fitness industry is actually quite appropriate because mm. it is a, quite a major undertaking to change the structure of your mind or to change the, the, the function of your mind. Yeah. And similar to 
fitness, except that now the the market is more wise to it. We see things like six minute abs and we're like, oh, bollocks. Like that's not really true yet with meditation, because people don't know as much about it. They think, oh, five minutes a day or three minutes a day is going to, I'm going to become like a Zen monk. And I think the muck mindfulness uh, movement is almost been damaging because people are then expecting bigger results from small inputs. Yeah. Nobody would expect to do three minutes of bicep curls and look like Arnold, but for some reason with meditation, it because it's a bit less tangible, we think it's possible. Yeah, I think it's it's such a complicated topic, meditation, because there's so many people trying to like make it their own in a way, and. What what technique do you use? Because I'm essentially I, I use the Headspace timer with with nothing else, and I just chuck that on for half an hour every morning. And I've I've done a little bit of Vipassana through um, Dave, a guy meditation Dave, ironically called. Um, in I met him in Bali, and he runs a Vipassana a lovely resort out there. So I've I've done one of his day long um, Vipassana treats. Got six and a half hours in, and nice. I had, I had the thought, oh, maybe you're done. And then it was, that was it. I was sat in my flat in Clapham. I don't think it quite has the same, like, I'm not as committed as if I was around a load of other people um, who are doing it. But yeah, six and a half hours, it was tough and it was done in increments. But I essentially just focus on here as if I was to have a Hitler moustache and I just focus. And if, and if my mind wanders off, I'm like, come on, just come back. Like a, it's a treat, like a mind, like a dog. Just, Nice. Heal, come that, back. That's a, and I just focus on that. What 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 do you use? Like what technique? So that's a decent chunk, six and a half hours as well. So the method that you choose probably depends on your temperament, how much time you can dedicate to meditation, a lot of a lot of factors. Obviously, getting started with just breath focus, you can never go too wrong. Um but Hanepala Garantana probably butchered the pronunciation of his name there, but in he wrote Mindfulness in Plain English. And yes, I've 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 read that a long time ago. Great. So he talks about <clears throat> two of the main branches of traditional meditation, which are samatha and vipassana. If you're just listening, Ed's very artfully been able to remove a hoodie without knocking his AirPods out. That's a yes, really impressive skill. <laughs> So the two branches, one of them is concentration-based and the other one is mindfulness-based or Vipassana. I see them as the comparison between spotlight and floodlight. This is where spotlight is the, the object of meditation is a specific thing that you're concentrating your focus on like a laser. Floodlight is open access awareness. You're sat doing a naturalistic study of all of the sensations and thoughts and anything that's passing through your your space of awareness have you used the waking up app sam harris's i haven't i know it's very it's self-inquiry oriented isn't it very much like i did his open eye meditation i'm trying to get do 20 minutes of his in like the afternoon as well just to see if it makes a difference which of course i'm sure it will at, at some point but it's like just looking at your field as vision as just an appearance in consciousness and it's like and now look back on your face as if there was no face how do you know you've got a face? I'm like, for fuck's sake, you should not be asking this, Sam. <laughs> I'll think about that for a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it, Sam. Yeah, so the what 
the Hanepola says in uh, in choosing the method is that if you're and I'm paraphrasing him here, but if you're a knowledge worker, you spend a lot of time in concentration states. It might be that you're quite good at holding your attention on a specific thing. And so you might not really feel challenged by just focusing on the breath without deviating for 30 minutes or so. Probably nowadays, everyone has a terrible attention span and actually would benefit from that as well. But um, that's one side of it, focusing the attention. The other one of Vipassana, it's still a focused practice, but it's widening the attention. It's it's almost increasing the um, resolution of your perception. And he says you need both to kind of balance the the mind if you do too much vipassana you can end up overstimulated and you've got the brightness turned up on everything it's like you've been on a low dose of lsd whereas if you do too much of the samatha like concentration meditation you can develop stone buddha syndrome the very overly still almost yeah kind of um wound down person and so that those are the two methods and it, on on a 10-day meditation retreat you would do the first five days of focusing on the tip of the nostrils and then on day six that's when you start expanding that focus to the rest of the body because you've developed that honing and precision of the awareness to then apply everywhere else yeah. you've you've been uh how many have you done about just one or is it i've only done one yeah are you are you planning to go and do another at some point Little treat yourself after your big, your big... little treat myself. Yeah, I, I might do it. It's it's so stupid. I'm ashamed to say this, but one of the big reasons that I haven't booked another one is just the admin involved in like, oh, I've got to move all my clients like to a few days before, and then what about the emails? Oh God, the emails! Like it, it's it's such a stupid because that's precisely the thing that you're supposed to be transcending. Yeah, <laughs> and yet you just you get caught up with that stuff. But once you're in it, you hand over your phone. And actually you're like, oh, thank good, thank goodness they've got that now. It's, it's turned off in a safe somewhere. And on day 10, they give you it back and you're like, ah, can you just keep it? Do you want to just yeah. keep it? Like, <laughs> I, I do a lot at the moment to like improve my relationship with my phone, as in like get it the fuck away from me most of the time. Um, because I realized like, uh, like my screen time was at like five and a half hours, couple weeks going I was like that is disgusting I work on Instagram but I do not need to be on there for a couple of hours a day and I don't need to reply to every WhatsApp and I don't need to be just like almost like an addict with my inbox just trying to check and see and, and I don't even end up replying to the emails I'm really I'm pretty terrible at replying to emails but I check to see that they're there so I'm I'm whittling it down slowly I'm at like three hours on on an average day now but I'm still very aware that that's almost one day of my seven relatively precious days a week that I'm given. Um, so other, I think going to a Vipassana retreat will kick kick off my breakup with my phone. I think seeing the screen time statistics, and if you're listening and you haven't done this, go on to, I mean, make sure you sat down, go, <laughs> go on to your settings for iPhone or Android and just look at the breakdown. It tells you like how long you've spent on each website, how long you've spent on each app, aggregate for the week, average for the day. And oh my God, like it, first of all, not out any excuse of, oh, I haven't got time to meditate or I haven't got time to whatever. But also it's, it's the anti-meditation, isn't it? Like going through, cycling through the same four apps to check if you've got notifications. 
And then looking at that and being like, oh, three hours. I could have spent those three hours sat meditating or exercising or with loved ones or whatever. But instead I've, I've just become a slave to the app developers. It's, it's rubbish. (laughs) I'm I'm an absolute (laughs) sucker for it as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's just quite, I think, especially for me and you, like we kind of get a lot of our good jobs from people on Instagram. Like it's, it's like a pat on the back when someone tells you done well, like it's, it is nice. Um, I think I wrote in my journal the other day when I was feeling pretty sad about it. I was like, here's a really fragile existence, just relying on other people to tell you you've done a good job. I'm like, when am I going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm doing a good job. I'm telling myself that. It's, um, it's weird. Yeah. I've, ju- I've just started reading the book um, by a British journalist, Oliver Berkman. It's called 4,000 Weeks. And it's, uh, it's essentially the anti-productivity book. It's to say, like, you'll never be productive enough. So you need to, like, whittle it down. And it's, this is part of my existential Monday is the fact that I'm, like, I'm doing so much and I'm never done, ever. Last, like, yesterday, I edited a podcast, recorded a podcast, sent out three or four invites to guests. I was like, this on a Sunday. I did one thing that I felt like joy from yesterday as I went to the gym. Gym was busy, so I sat in the sauna for 25 minutes. <laughs> that sounds like a book I need to read. That, yeah, yeah. You, you wake up with these high hopes, you put 25 things on your to-do list, you get through 12 of them, which is already like a superhuman yeah. achievement. <laughs> but it's I'm never like, enough oh, rubbish. for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Um, it's it's a strange thing, productivity, and I'm, and I'm delving quite deep into it. I think from that book, I've recently spoken to Nir Eyal, like I've been, it's a book, Make Time, but all of these books are just focused on like, how can you be a better member of society? How can you serve us better? How can you do more? And it's like, actually, what if, what if I like don't want to do that much? I feel like I've lost a bit of myself in the pursuit of productivity. So I'm like, oh, this is kind of an emergency for me. I need to do something about this. It sounds like you're at the the stage in your growth where you're trying to still spin all the plates that were initially, initially you had to spin, but now I think you've probably earned the right to start outsourcing. Yeah, I think so. I Treat yourself like a celebrity <laughs> where, yeah, you're, you're, you're now the star of the show. You, you turn up when you need to, you record and then everything else is in the hands of your team. Yeah, I need to find someone. So if anyone's listening and they like doing video editing or podcast editing, um, send me an email and that'll be in the in the description of this episode. But uh, nice. one, one other thing, yeah, come on guys, it's the advert. I don't know if I'll pay you that well, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I like that there's no messing about though. Like you straight away, you're like, right, fine. <laughs> send me a DM, yeah. let's do it. Yeah, I think I think like I've had it before and I've, it's just that letting go, isn't it? Of like, oh, I'm not going to control the content. It's like, but actually I've got so little time. I'm not making the content anyway. So yes, and a lot of the time someone else. <laughs> you surrender it and then they do a, a worse job than you would have done because of course it's, oh, it's not how I would have done it. Well, yeah, because it's not you. And then you're like, no, I'm just going to take it back. But then actually being able to say, no, no, let's just get this their first attempt ever at editing one of one of my videos. Let's just give them a couple of yeah. prompts and leave them to it. And then eventually they'll start doing it better than you ever could. And then you're like, why was I even wasting four hours a day editing? Yeah. Or three hours between a day the thinking time. about editing 
and <laughs> and then one hour or 25 minutes editing then 25 minutes of shit and then 10 minutes actually posting it oh well so in- interestingly make time i can see it in your shelf there great book and the model that he pointed out of the two sources of distraction the infinity pools and the ever filling inbox is fantastic because sometimes i've spent weeks literally weeks just banging between those two things just clearly trying to clear the inbox like put out the little fires i just mark all as red i'm terrible just oh (laughs) um and so that as knowing that you need to be doing the right thing is just as important as actually getting through things quickly i had another point but i've I've forgotten it because I'm so distractible. <laughs> That's right. I think you're only human. I don't know if you, maybe you need a reminder of that sometimes. <laughs> like a, like a, oh, the brain. so it was you saying spending three hours thinking about editing. One of the big challenges that I'm currently wrestling with and slowly getting better is when you're doing a task, productivity is just as much about doing the task well, but also being comfortable with all the things that you're not doing right now. Yeah, that's very heavily in that 4,000 weeks book. Because uh, it's essentially like, as soon as you choose to do a thing, there are infinite things you are saying no to. And it's about sort of becoming comfortable with the fact that there's a lot of stuff you're not going to be able to give your attention to. Yeah, uh, it's daunting. Because you're you're feeling the trying to carry the weight of the infinite things that you're not doing. How useless is that? Like, what's that doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not good. I feel like now, especially with, if you've left your other job, you're now going to have a lot a lot of time. I'm I'm excited oh, to see how your new productivity, um, <laughs> your new productivity journey of like, oh, actually, I don't need to cram all this shit and it's like you're going to come you're going to become even better at gymnastics there's going to be no falling on your head anymore or probably a lot of falling on your head <laughs> yeah but th- that's massive just going from two jobs to one and i i kind of feel like being a doctor is more than a full-time job i think it's 1.3 probably because yeah, of when you're adjusting between night shifts and day shifts or you, you know if you have four 13-hour shifts in a row your house just gets more and more messy. Like all, you know, your laundry and your washing up and everything just builds up because you come home and you just fall asleep. And, and so then you've got to catch up all the admin. And, um, so all of the kind of, and obviously the impact on your physique, on your, on your sleep quality, all that stuff. I've had calls from people. So uh, I, I got a call from someone who was, she was on the night shift. I was on the day shift and she called me at 4 PM. Like, Oh my God, Yusuf, you need the, I've, one of the patients has been sent home and I completely forgot to hand over about the potassium being this and, and actually, and I was like, oh, I know, I know the exact feeling that like in the Dread. middle, your unconscious just wakes you up after a night shift and goes, you forgot about this thing. You're like, Whoa, oh my God, I need to call in and, and check. Obviously it was fine. Like there are systems to make sure that people don't just get sent home yeah. randomly. <laughs> don't but, give that lady a banana yeah <laughs> no bananas for her so but you know the the kind of background open loops in your mind of things like that compared to uh, i see deep work there in the background too of having a shutdown routine at the end of your day saying right 
all these open loops, let's just nip them off, schedule them for tomorrow, we'll deal with it then. Now I can fully switch off. Yeah, mine used to be, when I was smoking quite a bit of weed, I'd be like, right, at the end of the day, I'll just have a joint, that'll, that'll shut me down. Whereas it, it started even sneaking into when I was like smoking, because I'd, I'd smoke a joint, I'd be like, oh, I feel, uh, I feel a few ideas coming on here. So then mm-hmm. even that was stealing from my time, and I'd be writing all this stuff down. So I had to, I've had to cut down on that, which, uh, I mean, it's probably a good thing, but <laughs> having to work out a new way to actually switch off is, uh, it's very difficult. It, it is. I think the endogenous methods to, to switch off are always not only better regulated, obviously, but they're more in your control. You can then you can then progressively overload them. And I, I just, there's something really satisfying about having everything you need within you. Do you know what I mean? It's why, it's why I'm so attracted to gymnastics and to lifting because they are improving the capacity of your body without the need for other equipment. Yeah. You know, like, but that's also my way of justifying because I can't catch a ball for, for, (laughs) I can't throw or catch. I'm absolutely terrible with anything involving (laughs) a ball or a stick or anything. So yeah, I I, I feel kind of, similar with like jiu-jitsu like it's it's constantly blows my mind like what i'm able to make someone else's body do or vice versa what they're able to do to me without really breaking a sweat sometimes if if they're good it's it's good I'd, stuff like i'd that. love I to think. speak to you about that at some point some of the um the, the the humbling lessons that you learn from it i've had a couple of friends who have been doing a bit of jiu-jitsu and they're like right come at me like this and I'm, i'll grab your arm and then, and you just get absolutely taken the piss out of physically and you're like how did that happen it's yeah i impressive. did a lot of privates when i was in in bali and uh andrew the the coach there like at, at the end of each private we do 50 minutes of like technique and then he's like, all right 10 minutes come at me I never got a point and I honestly must have done about 25, 30 privates. So a good few hours of me just coming at him as hard as I could. And there's <laughs> nothing I could do. Like he could honestly tie me up with my own clothes and leave me somewhere to die. And I'd be able to do nothing about it. <laughs> it is so humbling to be like, Oh, there are some serious limits to like me as a human and I need to work on them because this makes me kind of vulnerable. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, I remember I did judo when I was younger and some similarities, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, there was this old man who was one of the kind of, you know, military trainers in World War Two. He was like, he was super old. I think he was in his, I don't know, this was maybe 20 years ago. He must've been in his seventies or, um, and he was, he got me and this other guy to come at him. The other guy was like 17. So, you know, not a child. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he was like, I'm going to hold my arms out to the side. I'm not going to use my arms. Just come at me, just try and push me over or something. And without using his arms, he managed to get us both like in a pile on top of each other. I just remember thinking like you try and grab hold of him and he was like liquid. He just had no resistance and it was really unnerving. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. There's like little techniques then and it transfers really well in terms of like the philosophies of jiu-jitsu to life so like if if someone is like pushing down on you or someone is holding you you're never going to push them if you're putting all of your force into one big push so you have to do these little 
jolts, these tiny little shakes. And it's quite a good metaphor for life. Like if you're pushing really, really fucking hard at things, you just need to pull back and just do tiny little shakes to get yourself going forward as opposed to really just pushing at a door that won't open or someone who's got a black belt on who definitely won't move. <laughs> I really like that. Rather than just take a massive run up and just headbutt someone. You can- yeah, yeah. In a different way. It, it's crazy like i've got my flatmate to start and he's, he's a couple months into it now and he's he's not naturally aggressive at all has never been athletic probably weighed about 65 kilos up until very recently he's started getting a little bit wham or definitely wham for him he's like i can't believe like what you can make me do it just seems a bit unfair and i'm like mate i promise you if you just keep going for six months you'll be doing that to someone and you'll be sat on someone's head tickling their nose like <laughs> it will, will come very very soon it's just like the technique and it's one of those things you just have to stick at it's like with gymnastics like you you can't have a fragile ego in gymnastics because like you're gonna eat shit a lot right like you're gonna fall. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gonna hurt and you yeah, have to go and do very, it again otherwise true. you're gonna be paralyzed by fear and that's that's one of the big things with gymnastics like it's a common trope that if someone does a flip and they they don't land properly or they slip and whatever instantly everyone's like right quick do it again yeah yeah get get back on the and horse the that's where do. it came from yeah yeah <laughs> so interesting the kind of ego dynamics in that and especially when there's another person involved and you have to really get yourself in check and by the sound of it i mean i've never done jiu-jitsu apart from being asked to attack my friend but it's it feels like strength and intensity don't they don't really factor in that much that just trying to just do it harder isn't always after, the way to after a certain point yeah like you'll you'll have people who will start as well white belts and they'll be like 110 kilos obviously brutishly strong and unnaturally so and technique doesn't always prevail with them because when they're sat on top of you, like it's kind of hard to technique your way out of some brute knee being like on your sternum. It's quite hard to get out of that. But once you have done it for maybe three, four five years, it's like, I know people who are tiny. When I was in Bali, I was getting beaten up by Indonesian women who weighed like 53 kilos and they're just climbing all over me like a fucking spider monkey. <laughs> Is there a minimum amount of time that you you could get to kind of basic proficiency for just daily life? Or is BJJ not really the the tool for that? I've always wondered, like, is there something that if you just wanted to be like, okay, I'm adequate level, able to defend myself? I would say six months of four times a week. And would you combine it with a striking art as well i don't necessarily think that you would need to i i don't do much striking mainly because i don't like it i don't like getting kicked in the legs and i don't like getting punched in the face so like i mean that's, fair enough really uh, yeah <laughs> I, like dead legs are actually worse than being punched in the face you can't change your mind on that that will floor you for three weeks um but yeah i think six months of about four four days a week also like watching more martial arts whilst you're learning it is really helpful because you're like or well, that makes sense that he would go there and and that other person would move here. So like when other people or the casual fans of the UFC or like watch people on the ground or people 
like mock Khabib because like, oh, it just gets people on the ground. It's like, you have no idea how much technique goes into that and how you'd be able to do nothing against him. It's so impressive for someone like Khabib because he has taken down like Justin Gaethje, like a top American wrestler, and he made him look like an amateur. Dustin Poirier submitted him. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. And the scary thing is, like, Khabib's a white belt in jiu-jitsu. He, he wouldn't be if you were to grade him, but technically he is. And it's just like that, that Sambo um, that he does. That's but if, cool. I think for, for me, the impressive thing is that I've, I've submitted people who are like some Russian professional MMA fighters who train in Bali. Like I've submitted quite a few times and I'm going to probably put it on my gravestone, this, this one guy there, because he was about 110 kilos. And I just find it so impressive that me, someone who had no idea two years ago, can do that to someone who is a man mountain. How much Obviously, do you, you weigh? Punch, oh, like 78 at the moment. So it's, Same. it's just mental. Like... I'd, I'd highly recommend it. If you've got a little bit more time now, give it, give so, it a go because you might get I, obsessed with it. <laughs> you've, you've almost sold me onto it, to be honest, because there's something I find really satisfying about, like there are certain modular upgrades that you can do in life that are kind of blast and cruise and you've got it under your belt now. So like learning to ride a bike is one of them. I imagine the next step, learning to ride a unicycle or being able to do a backflip being six months of jujitsu like just having like basic proficiency of that conversational yeah. spanish like whatever it is there are things where like once you get it you don't really have to maintain it very much and you've just upgraded yourself as a person it's on your list it's on your attribute list yeah i like that yeah, as well stick it on your CV. i think you should definitely give it a go i'll, I'll come up and, and go to a gym nearby with you if, if you want. always welcome one let's do yeah. it um now you've now you've got both unemployed technically <laughs> oh, yeah um i'm just i'm wary of time i don't know how much time you've got left oh i'm i'm easy oh good right we'll i'm unemployed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> although is it not like if you and i were to do some jujitsu now would it would it not just be boring for you because i'd be such a little um pillow nah it's quite fun to like just see just to kind of like flex some moves that you can't really on people who are like that good, like different ways of like tying clothes around people. It's like, oh, it's pretty cool that I can do that to someone. Um, and also I like training with new people because I, I really like the coaching aspect of it, of being like, oh, whilst I'm here, like move that there and you just see the light bulb moment for someone. And they're like, oh my mm. goodness, I can do that. It's like, yeah, you can. Like that's all you need to do is just like move your knee here or or move your hips. It's um it's really fascinating. I, Lots I, of parallels. I get a, yeah, yeah, it's really really good. I think I definitely think you should give it a go. Sweet. Well, can you do a backflip? Yeah, I you really want to come. Okay. I really want to come and uh, do some gymnastics with you in that place. I've, I've oh for sure. So I, haven't probably, done it I was going to say I'll I'll teach you to do a backflip, but you've already got it. So one of those uh, side yeah. flips. So I'll do a trade for one of them. They're pretty cool. Oh, fine. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things where, like, it's yeah, it's very satisfying. Like, I think Johnny, as a, he's just such an amazing athlete, and he's kind of beat himself into submission to the point where, like, he tells his body to do something and it just does it. <laughs> so teaching him to do a backflip was crazy because he just got it in like two attempts. Yeah, because it's I was, just about you know, having be like, the right. isn't it? 
yeah, just throw your arms up, look here, bring your knees up. And he's like, all right, and just did it. You're like, right. And he's, <laughs> there we go. He's not light, is he? No, he's, um, he's 96 kilos at the minute. Yeah. That's impressive. Dropping down right? from 105. Yeah. Oh. He was getting a lot of hate online. People calling them really? all kinds of, um, chubby slurs. Yeah. Uh, has that affected him is he, or is that has forced him to lose weight? people on the internet are fucking idiots <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i think he's relatively thick-skinned um but it was kind of one of the additional pushes because he was he was a weight class higher than he should be really but because he's a he's an annoying height where he's kind of in between 93s yeah. and 105s um and i think it was one of the pushes where he was like look I don't, i'm not happy with how i look I feel out of breath going upstairs and stuff. The only time that this extra weight is actually helpful is in a sumo deadlift. So yeah. I think I'll just drop it's the weight. It's more life, the sumo deadlift. Yeah. <laughs> you should have let him know a long time ago. It was <laughs> conventional as well. Yeah, that's very, Romanian. very true. Yeah. Um, one, one other thing we're going to talk about is personal finance 101. Because I think... For me, like this year, I've become a lot more conscious of making smart financial decisions. I read Morgan Hantel's Psychology of Money, thought that was brilliant. I think just in terms of getting a general understanding of how money probably works around the world, people should read that book. And obviously, money, cash rules, everything around me, you know, like we need to understand it. Um, and you're a smart fella. And you told me you know Thank about you. It. So, <laughs> so I'm not going to be able to add anything more than Morgan Housel. I think he he's a very clear thinker, and the way that he describes r running your yourself as a um, as an individual and, and nailing your personal finance is great. the The main model that really helped me is, I think, so it's 2021, and people are still treating their salary as their only source of income and people are still living paycheck to paycheck or relying on outsourcing their pension to handle themselves for the rest of their life your pension like very few people know what assets being held in their in their pension or um what the timeline is or what the return is on it or anything and yet we put the most money into that out of anything else so and so much trust the, as well. Oh, massively. So I think some of the main things just to be aware of would be don't consider your salary as your only source of income. Try and build as many loose ties as you can. You know, take asymmetric bets and see what see what takes off. The way that people see assets is usually a bit wrong. So if you the house that you live in is a liability it's not an asset it's not generating you income yes it appreciates in value but there's also large monthly costs and interest and maintenance and all that kind of stuff um your car isn't an asset your car is absolutely a liability it will only depreciate and it is costing you money and in nobody forms. gives a fuck about it <laughs> yeah that, i mean that's a major one the man in the car you know, in in psychology of money when he's like right it's the man in the car fallacy of like you're 
no one cares about the person in the car. They just see the car and like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, just an interesting point on this is, and this is just a quote essentially, just to make me feel smug about being able to use it. So I was reading a bit of Walden by Henry David Thoreau, and even back when that was written, early, early, eighteen hundred, maybe. Remember, but he was like, "You don't get a mortgage. A mortgage gets you." Hmm. Well. You know what mortgage translates as? I don't. Obviously, death grip. It's no the... <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's quite an ominous term in itself. I'm not anti-mortgage, but I think if you're going to use it, use it to, to generate you some income. You know, get yeah. if you get an interest-only mortgage on a on a rental property, assuming it fits your risk appetite, then great. But yeah, one of the big things, as you say, is people overvaluing their salary mislabeling assets and liabilities flexing with objects so i see a loud car as just a public signal of how how small someone's penis is like that's that's all that's all they're doing it's showing a loud car (laughs) (laughs) it's you know it it's a unless you're an absolute car enthusiast and you get genuine joy from it, I really can't see it as a a very valuable way to spend your money. And then also recognizing the value of time. Time is the thing which you can convert linearly into money through a salary or non-linearly through a business or through investments or through compounding. And one way to recognize the true value of your time so we talked about anton creel's idea of leaving a job for 25k and the downside actually being say 2k you know whatever but also look at your hourly rate of a job it's not just the hours that you're spending in the office divided by your daily rate it's it's your your total net salary because gross is irrelevant you don't see the tax and stuff so it's what you take them minus work-related costs so parking any meals that you would have had at work that you wouldn't have other- otherwise had clothes that you need for work laundry all that kind of stuff maybe a coffee if you buy a costa coffee in the mornings or whatever and then also divide that by the total number of hours that you spend not just at work, but getting to work, getting home from work, doing projects at home that you need to bring in for the office or additional qualifications and studying and all that kind of stuff that you, all the work-related hours, like really expand that definition. And it's a very depressing realization because that it might come out at something like seven pounds an hour. And then when you look at impulse buys, you go, oh, I could buy a, a, a Starbucks and a biscotti it's going to be nine pounds, right? That's 1.2 hours. Say that again, your sounds dropped. I say, I say it was, it's pretty harsh when you think of it like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, right, I'm going to swap a cup of piss and a really shitty baked good for an hour and a half of my time. No one in their right mind would do that if I came up to you and say, hey, do you want these? Right, I just need to borrow you for an hour if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's nauseating. <laughs> Um, so I think that I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not anti nine to five jobs, but recognize what is the true amount that you're being paid. And then any surplus income, 
if you can save on the car, if you can buy like a run around for 500 quid and just take the ego hit, you can then recycle that excess income into something that's going to generate you some some consistent return. Passive income is possible. You know, if you if you put it into corporate bonds or REITs or properties or whatever, you can start generating passive income. And I can't remember, I think it was Taylor... I can't remember his last name now. Anyway, a guy called Taylor, Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> um, said nothing feels as good as passive income. Or do you know what? I've butchered both his name on the quote. Something, something. Yusuf said isn't as good nothing as... feels as good as. <laughs> <laughs> something, something doesn't never feels as good as passive. Oh, my God. No, I'm going to find the quote and we can we can add it yeah, into the, the show right. notes because... Um, it was such a good one and I just knacked it. But the idea, <laughs> thanks for making the note there, Ed. So the one, the, the, the great thing is that the odds are tilted in your favor because to live your life <clears throat> needs a baseline of expenses being covered. For most people, you could live a comfortable life on 1500 quid of expenses, assuming you're not, not living in London. Which I would not recommend. So, do. Oh, Awful decision, especially around lockdown as well. Yeah. So anything surplus to that is either stuff that you can choose to spend on pointless flexes that just extend the time that you're going to take until retirement, or if you stay true to your mission, recycle it, and then as soon as you can, once you get some kind of passive income covering your expenses, you have taken flight, like you've beaten that financial inertia and then suddenly you can do what you want with your time you can upgrade your lifestyle if you want to or you can say do you know what i'm just going to cruise yeah yeah i think it's such an important thing to like just get to understand is your own financial position where you are and where you're potentially at fault like the unnecessary flexes and i think when i first managed to like get some income from the podcast i I bought stupid shit. I've got like a Supreme basketball that cost me 120 quid and just a load of shit that I do not need. And right now I'm like, okay, I'm such a consumer. I need to stop this immediately. So I'm on a ban of online shopping until like at least early next year. I'm, I'm just going to stop spending as much as I can. And I'm almost treating it. And maybe some other people would like to try it like this. It's like, as if I'm a scientist with a hypothesis of like, right, if I don't spend this money, and I look at increasing this much. How much can I accrue? Whilst also, like we've, we are kind of liberated in, in what we do. We have the freedom of choice to be like, okay, next week I want to go to Mexico. Like to, to be able to make decisions like that, it becomes a lot easier when you're not buying a fucking supreme basketball. <laughs> I think that that's the key point. Like, there's there's nothing wrong with having a, a monthly budget of like fun stuff that you buy, like just you know, a tat budget where you can just buy a tat with it. But if you're working towards something that, as you say, a trip to Mexico or upgrading your mattress or boring stuff, but actually you spend so much time on your mattress that it's worth having a really bloody good one. Um, upgrading your living environment, your, your, your desk, like the, I suppose the stuff like your podcast setup is more of a business expense, but um, there are, ways that if you spend on them they they upgrade your daily existence 
then it, it's a no-brainer. And if you're working towards that and you know that actually I'm choosing not to spend on this because I want to be able to upgrade my daily existence with yeah. this, I think it's it's a lot more valuable. I'd, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't beat yourself up about the, the basketball because if that's if it's something that For you sure. use and you brings you joy, then... It's just, it's just sat in my bedroom, just looking <laughs> all right. Which, like, I, I cared at the time, so I don't regret it because I'm like, oh, I made that decision. And also it's a lesson of just not to buy useless shit again because it doesn't actually matter to me. So there's another interesting lesson, which is, um, and particularly particularly relevant if you trade. I don't know if you if you do any trading. I, I chuck about 100 quid into crypto each month just as a, like one day okay fine so you're, and you're and i have a a uh i have a like a fun i don't know if you heard of funds which is like a essentially the the compound they'll invest everything for you it's run by this guy tony smith who, who left um banking because he thought it was really corrupt and started his own thing and i honestly mate, i put all my tax money in there i'm just ready to just take it out at the end of the year because like, i might as well make 10 15 on it and keep that in i know it's yeah. a risk but i'm i'm that i don't give a fuck about risk really it doesn't it doesn't face me i don't lose sleepy over it and i'm like could work like what's the worst oh. that's gonna happen i'm gonna have to pay my tax out of money that i get paid that month or something it'll work out <laughs> fine and and you've got the self-awareness over your own risk appetite which is really really important i think a lot of people don't think about it until they're until their account drops in value and then they're like oh no i haven't got the risk appetite for this actually get me out get me out um so knowing what that is ahead of time and what your tolerance is is important but what i was going to say was if you have a trading account and you make some losses for example or the basketball another example of this you what you've paid for there is the lesson yeah. and trading losses are tuition that you've paid to the market and I think when you see it like that, especially if it's a lesson of like, oh, well, I'm not to do that again, rather than, well, I executed my trading system properly and I just got stopped out and there's nothing that I would change, then, you know, that's fine. But I think it's separating the decision, separating the way that you see a well-executed trade <clears throat> is not necessarily one that you took as a lucky punt and it turned out really well. That's not a good trade. That's just a lucky outcome. A good trade is one that followed your system and regardless of the outcome, the inputs were correct because if the system is good, then over the long run, it will be profitable. And so I think applying that to any decision that you make, did I make the right decision? Well, it's not so much about how it turned out because how it turned out is down to any number of chance events, yeah. but it's, did I put the right input in? And if I keep doing that over time, will that generally turn out to be positive? Yeah, will it average out as good? I suppose it's kind of the thing people to aim for. But I, I, I avoid actual like trading. I couldn't day trade. I have a, I have quite an, and I don't know if it's necessarily an actual thing, but like I would consider myself to have an addictive personality. I get obsessed with things. Like I've realized recently, maybe my obsession could be books. Now it used to be like gambling. I used to love to gamble. Got to a point where I was like twenty two, where I just came home from work after losing a few hundred quid on the football in like in based on like Calcutta FC. Like it was, these were not games that I gave a fuck about or were watching. Like I was just putting money down for the sake of it. I just ended up just crying to my mom. I was like, I, th I think I'm a gambling addict. Um, but it was from that point of realizing it and admitting that 
I've got some problem behavior just enabled me to stop. So maybe I wasn't an addict, but I, I had a problem. Most other things that you can be addicted to, if I if I have to kind of avoid it, because I'm like, I know that that'll be really, really fun and cool and awesome, and I'll get great feelings from it. So I'm like, yeah, no, nah, I won't touch that. <laughs> Self awareness seems to be at the core of so much of your growth that you've yeah. described, which is awesome. I, I'm pretty brutal with myself, and then people are like, oh, you shouldn't be so mean to yourself. I'm like, but the reason that I'm improving as a person is because I am pretty harsh to myself on on a regular basis but it it works for me and i and i've i've read from a lot of like journalists who kind of think the same will store from from reading his book selfie i'm like oh actually you're just you're me when when i'm older <laughs> you you don't like yourself that much and seem to function quite well off it and and are at peace with that i think that's the important thing and maybe that comes down to the self-awareness and I know that I should do self-compassion more and stuff like that, but. Do you have a belief that you need to self-flagellate in order to push yourself to perform better? No, not really. It's just, it comes quite naturally for me to not be good enough for myself or to want to do other things. I also pair this with quite a, a maybe an obscure sense of my potential like sometimes I'll joke and be like, yeah, maybe I am the white Kanye West <laughs> of just being like, so is a it a hedge? It, is it kind of an ego hedge so that if you're harsh on yourself first, no one else can rag on you because you've got in there before anyone else can. No, I don't think so. And I, I, I obviously, I, I look into it quite a lot. I'm very interested with it. I find myself quite, interesting but not in a way that i think everyone else should i'm like wow it's strange that i think like that um maybe i'll i'll delve into it but i i wouldn't necessarily go out and be like guys i'm terrible at this i'm terrible at that i'm very good at recognizing the things that i'm i'm okay at now and good at um and i also don't know if i'm that bothered about what other people say i mean of course we all are to a certain extent but not to a point where i let it get in the way of what i would like to do um, within the moral limitations of, of my life. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. I wasn't going anywhere with that. Yeah. Those days, those days are gone. Those days are gone. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's quite a weird thing. And I think like my humor has been self-deprecating probably all my life now not so much but i'm just very aware of like i'm happy to be like these are my limitations as a human you have to acknowledge some of them i can call myself mm. bad at something but i 100 percent intend on getting good at it and it's that that drives it yeah well there, there are there are some people who once they recognize they're bad at certain things they just write it off. They go, oh, well, fine. I'm just going to completely lean into this core skill that I have. Yeah. And I know there's kind of two philosophies on this. I think there's a book about it. One is about kind of just any weaknesses that you have, just sack them off and just completely lean into your strengths, which yeah. I can see as like a, I can see why that would work, but I do feel like there is a threshold that you have to get certain weaknesses up to functional level yeah. Otherwise, if you're 
an amazing public speaker, but you're a terrible gambling addict, then that's at some point that's going to catch up with you. Like you've got it. Or if you're, I don't know, an incredible surgeon, but you're 250 kilos, that's again, it's going to catch up with you. So there's, there's probably low hanging fruit in any aspect of someone that you need self-awareness to say, okay, this is good enough, or this is actually unacceptable. And I need to get that better, but I'm not planning to be world record holder of that thing. Yeah. I'm 250 kilos. I'm going to lose a bit of weight. I'm not planning on getting 6% shredded, but I'm just going to yeah. get myself functional. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's quite a powerful thing to be able to do. And people would often mention like my, my self-awareness, although it leans towards harsh at times, like it certainly has helped me start to improve my life because I wasn't always like this I, I used to be just cocky and unhappy I think and then it got to a stage where I was like oh actually this this cockiness it's it's a front I don't actually feel like this about myself how can I face how I actually feel about myself head on I got to a point of being like oh actually I'm shit at this I'm shit at this how can I get better I feel I've, sometimes I say that reading Mindset by Carol Dweck ruined my life because no matter what I do, I'm like, even if I'm dog shit at it, I know that with time and effort, I can become probably proficient. And that makes for quite a, a daunting life of like, there's going to be a lot of things I'm going to find I'm not very good at. And there's going to be a lot of things I'm going to want to get better at, but it's trying to fit them all in and prioritize. So as much as Carol Dweck has improved my life, she's definitely uh, fucked me in some sense. <laughs> <laughs> You just send her a, a hate message. That's <laughs> that's very courageous of you, though. Do you recognise the bravado cockiness that you used to have in other people now? Yeah. Like, do you see through it more easily? Hundred percent. I I would trace my. I don't. I know we've gone wildly off course here, but I would I would trace my identity crisis back to when I was like eleven. I think I'd moved schools. I think there was like different friendship groups that I was trying to get into. And I, maybe I pretended to be a different type of person to get in. And unfortunately, I think some of the stuff you do when you're a kid sticks around for years until you have a rightful slap in the face from life to be like, now you can't do stuff like this. It's, it's not actually who you are at your core. <laughs> yeah, very, very much. I think 11 is kind of the typical age for identity crisis, or at least the seeds of identity yeah. crisis going isn't it and as you say there's things which behaviors and coping mechanisms which we carry into our adult life until we either recognize oh, this no longer serves me or i'm just gonna double down on it yeah <laughs> keep you look like a school reunion wedgie in people who have better <laughs> jobs than you <laughs> I think the that's another thing is, is I am so afraid of being stupid because I look back and I'm like, wow, I was stupid. <laughs> so I'm like, I, can't, I cannot go there again. And if that but I know is probably it, not that healthy. <laughs> no, what, what's more concerning is if you look back on yourself and you're like, yeah, I was doing yeah. fine. Then something's suspicious about that. Yeah, it's Elaine de Botton in School of Life. And he's like, oh, uh if, if you're not embarrassed of who you are a year ago, then you're not progressing enough. It's like, that's quite a harsh quote, but let's face it. Like it, it is true. You don't have to be deeply embarrassed or feel shame about it, but to look back and have made no progress. It, 
I feel like it kind of defeats the point of life, doesn't it? It's like you're kind of meant to learn lessons, get better at different things, come into yourself a little bit more. My uncle once uh, described somebody as who'd been doing a job for 10 years. And he he said, he said, this guy hasn't done the, he hasn't got 10 years of experience. He's got one year repeated 10 times. It kind of stuck with me. You have to get varied experiences in life. I think it, it also makes for you a, a perceived longer life if you have a varied life as well. Um, but yeah, I, I'd, I'd hate to be at a point where I'd been doing something for 10 years and, and the years had kind of merged into one. It's like you should always be testing and, and trialing different things out. I like the kind of like scientist testing hypothesis thing. Like, so how do I do this? Oh, that didn't quite work. Oh, move on. Not romantic about it. Get out. Different thing. I feel like you're very good at that. You live quite an eclectic leisure life from what I've seen. Yeah. <laughs> that it seems like you really squeeze the lemon from what is what experiences are available in life. And it's awesome because I think when you're self-employed, it's very easy to just sit on the little desk at home and there's always stuff to be doing on your laptop and just get into a rut. Yeah. And time can fly by. It does. And like I'm definitely obsessed with what I call work in probably a way that's not great, but I think you also kind of have to be to a certain extent to be self-employed. Like you, you have to take ownership of it and I'll find myself, like I said, like doing work on a Sunday, like up this morning at probably five thirty, meditated. And then I was instantly reading a book, typing up notes on notion. Like <laughs> I, there, there's no boundaries in Austin Cleon's book, steal like an artist or, or one of his others from, from that series. He's like, his wife says to him, it's like, because you never go to work, you don't get to come home. Yeah, exactly. And so there's never a distinction. And yeah. I think when, when that starts to ingrain into your actual body structures and you, you end up just, that becomes the default. Then even if you get to the point where you've outsourced all the core activities and you've only got a two hour work day, you still ha have to undo the, the fundamental yeah. habit to, I'm interested that you use Notion for book notes. Is that because of Readwise integration? Because of Ali Abdal, basically. I don't really like it right. that much. I'm I'm open for for a suggestion from, really? from you if if you've got another. So, I think this depends on the way that you think. <clears throat> for me, it's not one that I I wish I loved it and I wish it matched with the way I think. But I think very much in terms of hierarchical structures and spatial compression. Whereas this tool Obsidian, similar to Rome Research, is much more flat interlinking structure. But what it allows is if you're writing books, so if you're writing summaries of books, it allows you to create cross links between ideas that you previously didn't think were related and allows you to have a lot of idea sex. And then eventually idea orgies where you have this graph of multiple concepts pulling back to certain things. And I think in your case, just because of now you've read so much, probably the challenge is in bringing them together and synthesizing them. Yeah. And I wonder if uh, it might be helpful I'll for you. It. It's, what is it called? Yeah, it, it's called Obsidian. It's a free app for Mac. And uh, I assume you use a Mac because you, yeah. you're a normal person. Um, and it just, the, the emergent structure that it comes out with is awesome 
a lot of academics use it um so you might be might be worth playing around with and it's it'll still integrate with readwise and um kindle and all that stuff too yeah okay that's good yeah i think I, i've recently upgraded my kindle and um i think it was actually one of chris's posts at some point said about sent kindle so fucking useful just oh really? ask all internet, send it to my kindle i'll read it on there in two minutes i read it quicker as well on the kindle um it's great but i'll, I'll definitely look into obsidian i um i feel like we've we've done a lot in an hour and a half i've really we I, I feel like we're, we're quite similar you've got a very calming voice so this has been such a a calm podcast but it's been great to catch up <laughs> I've I discovered a podcast yesterday called Startup ASMR. <laughs> it, it is literally they've hired some like British female voice actress to whisper stories about startups and software products. <laughs> and it's it's just it's so weird, but it's uh it's a clever idea. People can so, do anything on the internet nowadays. That's if if that's that's probably the main lesson from this. It's like you can you can do anything you want. <laughs> you've got a nice yeah <laughs> exactly that well it's been a pleasure chatting to you man i've um i've had so much that i wanted to ask you as well so if you're up for it i would love to chat to you on our podcast as well mate 100% yes validation was it yes <laughs> i just care about <laughs> um yeah mate what's so, so what's coming up for propane fitness what like the pts that are listening to this how can you help them with it so if you want to improve your physique we specialize in fat loss and muscle gain so go to propanefitness.com forward slash start we have a full free program on there no strings it's, it's you don't have to opt in or anything it's just available on there there's a cut cal free calculator oh my god did you hear that yeah that? someone's throwing furniture around upstairs um there is a free calculator where you can get your macros and targets free training program on there if you are a coach online or if you just have any particular realm of expertise that you think i want to turn this into a source of income and help other people with that we can also help you package that as a product and turn it into a source of income for you so you can quit your day job i'm doing it and and i'll just say for people Ed is living the reality of it. yeah i i would just say for people listening that there's a lot of people out there who claim to offer stuff like that but Johnny and Yusuf are incredibly smart and I would trust them with that if I should need it and I almost the fact that you just said do you, if you know something about something and you want to package it I'm like I know some stuff maybe <laughs> I should do this <laughs> um so I know that wasn't the most passionate sales pitch you've ever given but it, it was convincing for, for me and uh it, it's been a pleasure chatting to you mate and it's been absolute pleasure where can people find you as well so me personally, I am Propane Fitness on Twitter or um, or on Instagram. If you want my profile, I'm Yusuf Smith on Instagram as well. I can't remember if there's a dot. It might be a dot. Um, I'll find it. It'll be in the notes. It's mainly it's mainly me upside down on my personal Instagram doing flibbly bibs. Uh, but yeah, Propane Fitness anywhere, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. And coming to a YouTube ad near you soon. Yeah, you will get targeted. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much for listening, you absolute legends. I hope you got as much from that conversation as I did. I love chatting with Yusuf, and I'm very much looking forward to going on to their podcast and switching roles so he can ask me some more questions because I think we vibe pretty well together. Um, All the information for Yusuf and Propane Fitness is in the description. I'll be back soon with some book reviews and some more conversations with people about things that I think are important. Now, I'm extremely grateful for your time, as always. You absolutely legends if you have enjoyed it please do consider sending it to a friend sharing it on social media give me a tag it helps me grow the podcast and it helps get people into reading doesn't it so all of the books that we spoke about as well are in the description of the episode and all of the sponsor information as well but you're all absolute legends i hope you have a fantastic day love you bye (laughs) 